We are in the heart of Triffitt's dilemma. If an individual country's currency is also used for the global reserve currency, there will come a point at which the needs of the domestic country come into conflict with the needs of the international community. This, I really feel like we're at this key point in history where all the cards are on the table and this is the really big game and this is kind of the game for all the marbles, right? And so I think there's a combination of domestic economic policy and global geopolitical policy that is kind of all wrapped around the dollar right now. And so I think that's kind of what we saw, see start to play out in 2022. And I think that will continue to play out in the years ahead. Guys, Brent was rubbing in my face that negative 40 some degree weather. He's in sunny Puerto Rico right now. So we're going to try to have a civil conversation after that. But uh, yeah, yeah. now I'm... I'm very psyched to have you on. Actually, you and, and Larry actually kicked us off this year, so it only feels right that you you help us end the year as well. Um, I, I want to spend sort That's of a right. portion I'd, of this. I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten that, but go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, um, I, I wanted I spend like a bit of this conversation, almost doing a retrospective on 2023, uh, 2022, and then spend a good chunk of the later half of this this episode talking about 2023 and your predictions. So. I almost hate to start with such a broad, high-level question, but if you had to kind of sum up the, the sort of macro story of 2022, you know, what are some of the highlights that people should be taking away? Well, you know, I think in large, the the story of 2022 was the story of the dollar, right? Um, you know, I, I know that that's what I end up speaking about a lot, and it just so happened that 2022 was kind of dominated by the dollar. I think you can pretty much, you know, sum up all of the different market views based on that. You know, at the beginning, you know, the first half of the year, uh, even the first nine months of the year, the dollar just went on a pretty strong run and didn't show any signs of weakening. Um, you know, at the end of the Q3, you know, it, it, it I think it was up 20% for the year at that point, and it was due for a pullback. We even sent out a tweet the morning of the high saying, hey, now that everybody's a dollar bull and is on board and it can only go one way, it's probably due for a pullback. And, you know, sure enough, uh, that's what's happened. Uh, but it was largely the year was largely driven by rate hikes or rate hike expectations. And as as rate hikes were uh, put in place and continued uh, to be put in place by the Fed, you know, the dollar moved higher. And, you know, in Q4, when inflation started to come down a little bit or at least stop rising at the same rate, however you want to you know, define that. And as the expectations for the pace of rate hikes uh, started to slow, then the dollar came off. And, you know, when the dollar came off in, at the end of Q3, then risk assets rallied. I mean, the, the, the kind of amazing thing, and I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but the, always the amazing thing to me in bear markets is the bear market rallies. Bear market rallies are just killers for bears. I mean, they really are. You know, in March, we had a very strong bear market rally. Uh, June, late July into the end of August, we had a very strong bear market rally. And then in, you know, middle of end of October, beginning of November, we had a very strong bear market rally. And now, you know, the last couple of weeks, you know, every one of these bear markets rallies has so far seen it turn back down. Right. And that that's kind of very indicative of a bear market. You typically don't get these 15, 20 percent runs over a month or two in bull markets. You typically get those in bear markets as the shorts get squeezed and you know people struggle to keep up with the indexes. Um, but I think we're probably going to kind of continue to see that in the next year, Mike. Um, you know, uh, you know I, I don't think this story is over. Um, we expected this year to be very volatile and we expect next year to be very volatile as well. Hmm. 
So maybe to just, you know, continue on that that line of thought, if you were if we were to pull up a chart basically of the S&P 500 or the Nasdaq, basically any of the major US uh, stock indices, you sort of see this, you know, these little lumps and he's making lower and lower lows, right? So I think at the time of recording here the Nasdaq yeah. is somewhere around 10,300 something like that. Do you have a broad look for for equities, I suppose, moving into the new year and if if you have any opinions on US based equities versus sort of emerging markets and what's going on over there I'd love to get sort of tease your thoughts out on that as well. Sure. Well, I you know I always I always kind of laugh at this this time of year because it seems like every year the trade of the year for the coming year is going to be short the dollar and go long emerging markets. And somebody <laughs> yeah. told me that Goldman kind of put out that recommendation a week or so ago but and I, I don't know whether this is the case or not, but at, in my mind, this is the trade every year that everybody's supposed to do. Um, and it just never works out. Now, someday it will work out, but so far it just hasn't. And, and I'm of the belief that it's not going to work out this year either. Uh, I think next year is going to be a very difficult year for risk assets in general. Uh, I don't expect, at least in the first half of the year, I don't expect any risk asset markets to do well. But if I was going to be exposed to one of them, I would rather be exposed to U.S. markets uh, than the rest of the world. Uh, I think the rest of the world is uh, in worse shape uh, than the United States. And I think that the United States has a number of advantages, whether they're deserved or not, is kind of irrelevant. I think we have them. And I think that allows us to kind of weather the storm a little better. Um, but in general, I think that uh, I think that the Fed will continue to hike rates. Now, whether they should or not is a completely again, different argument. I think that they will. I think Powell is bound and determined to get inflation under control. I don't think he cares if he causes a recession to do it. And I think there's great risk to, to, to not only him personally, but the Fed as an institution. If they were to pivot too early and inflation were to reaccelerate, I think that would do tremendous damage to the institution as a whole and him personally. And I don't think that he has the, the guts, so to speak, to pivot early. So I think he will wait for the market to turn lower and perhaps turn lower significantly. Um, and that would pull inflation expectations down. And then he could go and perhaps pivot. Um, you know, maybe he has to save the market again. Maybe he has to go back to QE, do, do rate cuts, however you want to define that. But I, I would be very surprised if he pivoted proactively ahead uh, of, of that happening. Now, anything's possible, but I, I would be surprised. Brent, how do you think... Fed credibility fared overall in 2022. I think it's been a rough couple of last years for the Fed, right? They were uh, sort yeah. of criticized during 2020, right? We had sort of unlimited QE forever, the QE bazooka, money printer go burr, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And the criticism over the the course of this that was a, that was an overreaction, right? With with re the benefit of yeah. retrospect. And now the Fed is sort of getting criticized on the other side of that, right? So we saw record inflation. The Fed was arguably, you know, slow to the draw, essentially, in terms of petering off QE and uh, hiking interest rates. And now, so the argument goes, they are hiking to the point where they're going to cause unnecessary damage to the economy. And, you know, there's this line, the Fed is where risk it, at risk of being the 1970s is actually going to end up being the Fed of the 30s and cause something of a depression. And what do you think about how the Fed has reacted to you know, sort of these historic troubles yeah. uh, the last couple of years and how does Fed credibility do into the new year? Well, I've, I've kind of got mixed feelings on it, to be honest, and, I, and I'll tell you why is number one, mm -hmm. I, I am not a fan of central bankers uh, and, and I have a hard time giving them credit for anything. You know, now having said that, I think you kind of have to give Powell at least a little bit of credit for this year. Now, whether you need to give him credit for the years ahead from now, that's to be determined. But at the beginning of the year, 
very few people thought he would be able to get one or two rate hikes off without pushing us back into perhaps collapsing markets or at a minimum a recession. Um, but he has raised rates consistently all year. And it's been the highest and the fastest hiking cycle in history. And even though markets are under pressure, and even though there's been a lot of volatility, they've, for the most part, overall, they've held up. Now, you could say, yeah, but, you know, the NASDAQ's down 30%, and S&P's down 25%, and the Dow's down 15%. Well, that's true, but Powell wants that to happen. I mean, that's what he is trying to do. He is trying to get asset prices down. He's trying to get growth down. He's trying to kill demand in order to get inflation under control. Now, what he doesn't want is the system to collapse, right? Hmm. And so if you measure him by, I want to get rates higher, I want to slow growth, I want to get asset prices under control and get the froth out of the market without collapsing the economy, so far, again, to be determined in the future, but so far he has successfully done that. And again, very few people thought that he would be able to do it, but yet he has. Now, Will it end up causing a big problem? Will he have to pivot? Will he cause a recession from which he can't come back? You know, time will tell. But I, I don't think that he's scared of causing a recession. You know, I've, I've said this several times this year with regards to Powell, that he is, in my opinion, far and away the most clear speaking central banker I've ever, I've ever listened to or seen. Um, there's no mystery in what he's trying to do. He's not, you know, being cute with words. He's been very clear that he is going to raise rates, that he wants to kill demand. He's been very clear that it might cause a recession. He's been very clear that the pain of a recession would be less painful than the pain of ongoing inflation. He said people may have to lose their jobs, and he said asset prices may have to come down. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? There's not a whole lot of you know, mystery there. Now, whether that's a foolish you know prognostication to take, whether that's a bad strategy, whether he will ultimately fail again, that, that's a separate argument. But but what he has said he would do and what he has done is, you know, he has done exactly what he said he would do, despite, you know, market turbulence along the way. So from that perspective, I think you have to give him credit. Now, from the big picture, I, I think in his mind, he believes that if if the market does go into a recession, that he and his colleagues and the central bankers and the governments, they have enough tools to then go in and save the market, so to speak. Now, that, yeah. I think, is probably an over-exaggeration, probably too arrogant for my taste. And I think that will end up getting him in trouble. But I think that's what he believes. And I think that's why he's doing what he's doing. So um, on the one hand, I do give them credit because he's done what he said he would do when a lot of people didn't think he would. Um, but at the same time, I would not say that I'm a huge, this has not turned me into a fan of central bankers and their ability to, to, to manage the global economy. You know, we know that he's a student of history, right? We know that he studied certainly the, let's call it yeah. the Burns, uh, Volcker era very deeply. And I think one thing that a principle that it seems like he was operating on is give yourself the leeway for when you eventually have to cut again, that you've got the tools in your tool yeah. belt basically to do it. So if you look at these sorts of charts of historic rate hike cycles, I mean, they're, the most of them yeah. kind of look like this, and then they go up. We are like that, and it's 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 a little surprising yeah. to me, at least, that nothing has really broken, right? I know we had some trouble with the gilts over in the UK. Well, okay, so you just made a good point, which I definitely want to come back to the the market breaking in the UK. So let's let's make mm. sure we come back to that. But in the okay. meantime, um, if, we, if we stay on the Fed for a minute, I think you're absolutely right, and and th this is my point: is that again, not that I'm a fan of his, but 
I, I do give him credit for doing what he said he would do. And he now has more cushion to cut than Bernanke had in 2008. At the beginning of 2008 or before the financial crisis, if I remember right, Fed funds rate was around three and a half percent, you know, and they ultimately had to cut a lot and go to QE. But, you know, Powell now has it at four and a half percent. So he has more you know, leeway to cut before getting to zero than, than Bernanke had in 2008. So from that perspective, he's giving himself some ammunition, right, in order in order mm. to fight whatever it is that ultimately happens. Um, but going back to, 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 to your other point, and I think this is critical, and, and I often get asked, well, what is the Fed going to do to get out of this? How are they going to manage this? And I think it's a fair question, you know, again, we're the biggest market in the world. We're kind of the global, the Fed is kind of the global central bank, but I very rarely, if ever get asked, how is the bank of England going to get out of this? How's the bank of Japan going to get out of it? Yeah. You know, how's the ECB going to get out of it? How's the, the, the PBOC going to get out of it? Because they have the same challenges that we do and they have mm-hmm. less tools to use. And so while it's great to analyze what's the Fed going to do and how that's going to impact the market, I think we have to remember that there's other markets out there that will affect the, even though everything the Fed does affects the rest of the world, what the rest of the world does affects us as well. And so even if we play all our cards right, them playing their cards wrong could lead to a problem or vice versa. Even if we get everything wrong um, or if they do everything right or, or if they do everything wrong and we do everything right, it can, you can still have a crisis because markets are so intertwined now. So I think that's important to keep in mind as well, because, you know, at the at at the end of September. So 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 we had a big market run up in January, February, and then a big or sorry, the market sold off in the first two months of the year. Big bear market rally in March. They sold off again into June, July. Big rally again, sold off into the into September, rallied again. But at the end of September, equities were at their lowest point in two years or, or pretty close to it volatility was at its highest point in two years or very close to it. The dollar was at a 20 year high uh, and everything was kind of on a precipice, right? And the last week of September, the Bank of Japan had to intervene in the JGB and currency market. They had to try to save both of them at the same time. The Bank of England had to intervene in the gilt market. This is what you were referring to earlier. In order yep. to save that market from you know imploding, basically, at the end of July, the, the the European Central Bank raised interest rates for the first time in like ten years. But at the same meeting, they announced that they had to start buying peripheral bonds because the periphery countries' bonds were starting to widen out and causing problems. So my point is, is that while everybody is worried what the Fed's going to do and how they're going to get out of it. All the other three major central banks had to intervene in their markets to, quote unquote, save them the last week of September. And they did. You know, they did save them. And that kind of pulled us back from the precipice. And so I'm of the belief that, you know, while it's certainly important what the Fed does, it's equally important what these other central banks do. And quite honestly, I just don't think they have the the talent to, to pull this off. And that's partly why I think that we're headed towards this, you know, currency crisis and this sovereign debt crisis. I, you know, central banks are very powerful. And I do think the people that run them are smart people. I don't think they're idiots. 
but I think they're arrogant and I don't think that they, they have the skills to pull off what they think they can pull off. And so I, that's why I think we're kind of headed towards more volatility and, and more crisis. There's a lot of really interesting threads to pull on there. Brent, one, one thing I want to get your take on, you were starting to talk about the market for sovereign debt and currencies and crises in both of those. I'd love to sort of tease out the connection in between those two. Maybe we could start actually with the Bank of Japan, right? The Bank of Japan just this week, they widened the band for their yield curve control. Could you maybe using the Bank of Japan as an example, because they are in so many yeah, ways sure. at the forefront of uh, monetary experimentation, if you want to call it. Can you talk about what happened at the Bank of Japan? And then maybe if we could get into the relationship in between JGBs and, and the yen. Yeah, that, that's actually a perfect way to do this. And I'm going to set this up by saying that for all the people out there who talk about all the problems with the U.S. and the dollar, and all the crazy programs, all the crazy debt, all the crazy spending, the printing of money, the profligate politicians, all of this stuff, and, and, and use that as evidence for why the dollar will absolutely lose value, are absolutely right. The issue I always like to point out, though, is that there, these other countries are already, it's already happening. All the things that the people who say the dollar is going to lose value, value are worried about happening one day are already happening right now today in Europe and Asia. And so using the yen is a perfect example of this. So what the Bank of Japan did this week is they widened, they announced that they were going to increase QE. So they're going to, you know, without getting into too much of the details of what QE is, they're going to print more money. But they also agreed to widen the band off of which they do yield curve control on the treasury or the Japanese treasury, the JGB. So let's talk about what that means. Um, and actually, let's go back to the beginning of the year, because if I tell it in progression, it, it will help explain what they did earlier this week and why I ultimately don't think it will help. So as you mentioned, the Bank of Japan has been doing these extraordinary monetary policies far longer than, the, than Europe and the United States. They're kind of the pioneer with all of this stuff. But they've had negative rates for a number. They had negative rates for a number of years. So what does that mean? That means that Japanese banks, insurance companies, endowments, financial institutions, large investors have been buying long-term Japanese government bonds that either have zero yield or issued with a negative yield. Okay, so that's all fine and good while yields stay low. But you have to remember that as interest rates rise, bond prices fall. So while we were in a deflationary environment, that was fine. But with all the inflationary pressures that the world has felt over the last, call it 12 to 24 months, however you want to define that, that inflationary pressure even started to show up in Japan. And as a result, the JGB yield, the yield in Japan rose 25 basis points in the first three quarters of this year. But the reason that's a problem is because there's so much convexity in these long-term bonds that if interest rates rise even a little bit, the price drops a lot. Okay, so all of these banks, insurance companies, and again, all of the basically the Japanese banking system that owned all these long-term Japanese government bonds, the prices went down a lot as interest rates went up even just a little bit, and it caused a, a crisis. And there were several times in April where where the Bank of Japan had to come out and reiterate their commitment to yield curve control and keeping rates low. Because as rates went up, it was putting more and more deflationary pressure on the banking system, and it was in danger of collapsing. And so 
So they, they, but they came out and they, 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 they reaffirmed their policy and that kind of kept everything smooth for the next, call it four or five months, right? Or six months, eight months, you know, and, and until earlier this week, the, oh, sorry, at the same time, I need to back up. The way that they did that, the way that they got the market under control and kept right rates from rising is they did more QE, Okay. So they bought more bonds from the market, which means they put more yen into the market. And that's why you saw the yen was down like 20% in the year. And the yen fell so much that it, at the end of September, this is what I said, they had to come out and artificially support the yen because the price of the yen was getting killed. Okay. Here's where it becomes a problem is because the programs that you would do to save the yen are the exact opposite of the programs that you would do to save the bonds, Right. Because, you know, in, to save the currency, you have to raise rates or you need less of it. To save the bond market, you need lower rates, right? And you need to buy them in order to keep those rates low. And so they're at cross purposes. And so, you know, at the end of September, because the yen was down so much, they had to come in and kind of intervene to save the yen. But they did and they got it under control. And here's the thing. You can save both of them for a short period of time. But over a long period of time, you have to choose one. Okay, so now let's fast forward into, you know, earlier this week, three months later, or two months later, whatever the number is. And the Japanese central bank came out with and they they updated their policies. And they said, we're going to do more QE, we're committed to, you know, this easy monetary policy. But in order to keep the currency from falling too much, we are going to let the the band with which the Japanese treasury trades increase. So instead of going from zero to 25%, I think they said now it can go zero to 50, or sorry, zero to 25 basis points, zero to 50 basis points. So they widened the band through which it can fluctuate. And what happened when they did that? Well, the yen strengthened a lot because now interest rates could go higher. The market thought, okay, interest rates can go from 25 basis points to 50 basis points. On the one hand, 25 basis points is not that much. On the other hand, it's double. When interest rates are very low, every move is a bigger percent of the total, right? So essentially what it was saying is interest rates could double immediately in Japan. So that meant the currency would strengthen. But what does that mean? It also means that if interest rates rise, all those long-term Japanese bonds, the price plummets. So immediately upon this, the Japanese bond market was halted because... You know, it just caused chaos. And so the, my, my, my problem with it is, yeah, you can do these things and they will be okay for a little while. And you can shut markets and you can, you know, make moves to maintain stability for, you know, a few days or a few weeks. But ultimately, they have to choose one. They will have to choose, do we save the yen or do we save the bond market? Well, governments always say we will not sacrifice the currency and then they always sacrifice the currency always do it's just, it's played out so many times in history i can't even list them all and here's the reason why the currency benefits the citizens the most to the detriment of the government and the bond market benefits the government the most to the detriment of the citizens so who are they going to choose of course they're going to choose to save themselves before they save the citizens not only that, but if they were to let the currency strengthen, but collapse the banking system, 
then you have another crisis on your hands. And the third thing is, if you let the currency appreciate and you sacrifice the, the bond market, then you can't raise money anymore. That's, the bond market is the method via which the government gets money. If the bond market collapses, there's no more method via which the government can get money. So if, it would be like saying that you're going you're gonna to cut your own salary to zero. You know, you just, could it happen? Theoretically, it could happen. But how do you run a company or how do you run your own family or how do you run your business if you don't have any money? It's the same for a government. If they don't have any money, how can they run the government? So for them to choose the currency over the bond market, it doesn't make any sense because then they don't have any money. So unless I theoretically they could go to MMT and they could literally just print a bunch of physical banknotes. But the point is, is that is the, you know, the bond market is the, is the transition mechanism by which the government gets money in today's monetary system. And so I think the same thing is going to play out all over the world, Michael. Uh, and I think it's going to play out as soon as next year. You know, you cannot save both the currency and the bond market. You eventually have to choose one. And I'm, I will bet, uh, you know, all day that they save the bond market to the detriment of the currency. So basically, there's this, there's this tension that every country is going to have to solve at some point in between saving the currency market, saving the bond market. That has emerging markets, frankly, have been dealing with that for a long time. But it's starting to come to big United States allies, right? It's coming to the Eurozone. It's coming to Japan. Not necessarily an ally, but it's also coming to China for what it's worth. So this is basically an issue that they're going to be having to deal with now. The United States is in a little bit of a special camp because we have this very special privilege, which is called the global reserve currency. And basically, if I had to kind of summarize here, what I would be maybe predicting, and maybe I'm drawing on, but this is my own sort of uh, thought process going into the new year, is that there's going to be this kind of, let's call it long volatility going into this new year, right? Where we're constantly moving in between inflation versus deflation. The Fed has like maybe yeah. overreacted a little, then overreacted on, on sort of both sides. So rather than this you know, prediction, which is inflation or deflation, we're just heading into a world that feels a hell of a lot more volatile. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, the, the question you were starting to, you actually helped me think about this, which was basically looking at the United States as kind of a modern day empire, right? And when the Fed is setting policy, obviously it's for domestic, but there's a huge international component as well. So I understand this idea that, look, there are no voters abroad, right? And ultimately the Fed is going to yeah. be more beholden to its domestic constituents. But at the same time, are we really supposed to believe that if we keep hiking rates to infinity and if Japan, the Eurozone, all of our biggest allies, we start crushing their markets, are we really not going to respond at all? I suppose I'd love to get your thoughts on what do you yeah. see the ECB, the, the Bank of Japan, how are they going to fare this year and survive? Well, I don't think they are. <laughs> but then, okay, so this, the, the, this gets into a little bit bigger discussion. And, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's really important to understand this. Um, we are in the heart of Triffin's Dilemma. And uh, for those who are not familiar with Triffin's Dilemma, Triffin's Dilemma says that if an individual country's currency is also used for the global reserve currency, there will come a point at which the needs of the domestic country come into conflict with the needs of the international community. And that's right where we're at. The rest of the world, because they are so hooked on dollars and because of the euro dollar market, they need dollars. And even though the U.S. needs to restrict dollars to combat local inflationary pressures, 
the rest of the world needs dollars to continue operating. And so the U.S. domestic market is able to withstand a tighter money market than the international community is. And this is so when Powell says we are going to raise rates because we need to inflate these inflationary pressures, what he is actually doing, he's exporting the inflation that we have to the rest of the world. And so he's getting the inflation out of the United, United States and he's sending it to the rest of the world. And that's causing prices to rise in the rest of the world. And then it puts pressure on those economies, right? And so that, and you're seeing that in Europe with, with the rising energy prices and, and food prices. And, you know, they're having a heck of a time. And so this is where it starts. And so in, and, but it's not, it's not, it's, it's not just hurting Europe. It's, it's, it's hurting our, it's, it's, our, it's hurting the whole world not just the United States, not just our allies, but it is also, but it's important to note that it is also hurting our allies. And so there is no doubt in my mind. And in fact, I've had meetings with people that I know for a fact that our allies abroad are pushing back on the strong dollar and they were pushing back hard in August and September. No doubt about it because the strong dollar was just killing them. And so I, 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 my guess is that actually plays a little bit into Powell slowing down a little bit. But I would also say that it was not an accident that the U.S. strengthened the dollar. Not only were they strengthening, raising rates and strengthening the dollar in order to combat inflation and export the inflation. But that also has a secondary but equally important effect. And what it does is it enables the United States to maintain their position at the top of the global hierarchy. So if you're standing at the top of the mountain and all the other competitors are trying to get up there and knock you off, if you can do something to knock them back down, even if it hurts you a little bit and you're, let's say the whole mountain comes down a little bit, your relative position is strengthened by everybody else falling a little bit more. And it's no, there's no doubt in my mind that the Fed is using and the U.S. has used the U.S. dollar as a weapon. Um, it, of course, they are. That, that, that's the way of empire. Of course, they're doing that, right? <laughs> now, do they really, do they want to blow up their allies? No, they don't want to blow up their allies. But do they want to keep their allies below them? Of course, they want to keep their allies below them. The chairman of the board never wants to, you know, get rid of the chairman of the board and let his usurper just take the throne. I mean, it just doesn't work that way, Right. Everybody wants to maintain power. And I would argue that one of the things that they're doing by doing this, they're actually hurting Europe. And in many ways, they're deindustrializing Europe. So why would they do that? That's one of our big allies. Well, you do that for two reasons. One is it keeps them below you. It keeps them a vassal state. Number two, it keeps them from partnering with Russia and China. So in the big, big global macro game or global geopolitical game, the last thing you want is an industrialized Europe partnering up with, with Russia that has all of the commodities and resources, right? Um, and that gets a little Machiavellian, I know, but you know this is you know this is not a game for little boys and girls. This is this is the big game, and so I'm sure some of that's going on. And and I really kind of think, Michael, that, that we are now. And it, people have talked about this fourth turning. It's like you know we're going through these big cycles. You know, governments know this, right? And this, I really feel like we're at this key point in history where 
all the cards are on the table and this is the really big game. And this is kind of the game for all the marbles. Right. And so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's killer be killed. It's, it's very ruthless. It's the game of Thrones. You know, it's not checkers versus chess. This is game of Thrones. And I think the U S will do whatever it needs to do to stay at the top of the mountain. And I, and I think they will use the dollar or they will use, you know, political pressure, or they will use the military, or they will use whatever tool they need to use to stay there. And so I think there's a combination of domestic economic policy and global geopolitical policy that is kind of all wrapped around the dollar right now. And so I think that's kind of what we saw, see start to play out in 2022. And I think that will continue to play out in the years ahead. So Brent, you just mentioned, I'm not I'm sure we've talked about this at some point, but I'm not sure if I've ever, I can't remember your opinion. You know, we've had Neil Howe on the show before, but what are your thoughts on, you know, how much do you buy into this kind of changing fourth-turning paradigm? And maybe to summarize for listeners a little bit in case you missed that episode, fourth-turning is kind of this idea that every 80 or so years, right, we kind of rebuild and then end up discarding and rebuilding anew our major institutions. And if you want to assign a theme for 2022, but even go back, you can go back further than that. A big through point is loss of faith in a myriad of different institutions that support everyday life, society as a whole. The Fed, we've been talking a lot about the Fed on this particular podcast, but that's when that certainly their credibility is being challenged. Media, mainstream media, I would say is being challenged on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, health organizations, right? Our medical and health system, COVID has done not, is not uh, engendered, I think, more support and trust in that system our education system, it's basically everything. And so for me, when I see all these signs, like, man, this really does seem to fit Neil Howe's framework. What, what are your thoughts on kind of this whole idea of transition and lack of trust in institutions? Yeah, I, I, I think he's right on. I mean, I, I read his book 10 years ago, but it was written 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And it's, it's, yeah. it's amazing how prescient he was. And, you know, it's almost like he's a wizard that he was able to see this coming. And, and I would say that yeah. the fourth turning probably influenced my overall worldview as much as any single book, um, just because I, I, I can see it all playing out. And what I find really interesting is it's kind of a global fourth turning. You know, I don't think this is just happening in the United States. I mean, if you look at Europe, you're seeing the same things. The faith in institutions in Europe are failing. The faith in institutions in Asia are failing. You know, it's not, you know, in the Middle East, you know, there's you know, people are wanting to kind of rise up and, and, and push back against the, the institutions that have dominated their lives for years. And so I kind of feel like we have all these little, you know, domestic fourth turnings going on, but it's all bubbled up into this great geopolitical fourth turning where, you know, I'm not certain about anything, but one thing I'm fairly highly confident in is that the map will look different 10 years from now than it will today. And um, I, I think uh, borders will be redrawn, unfortunately, and I don't think it will be a peaceful transition to those to that new map. Um, so, you know, I, I, it sounds very dark and dire, um, but I'm, I'm actually an optimist. I actually think I am actually think there's this chaos that I see coming is actually going to create great opportunity. Um, I think you're going to have to keep a very open mind. You're going to have to be open to, to new ways of thinking to. But if you can do that, I, th I think the opportunities are tremendous. Hmm. So maybe if I could, I've, I've been starting to, you know, there's a lot of, let's say, political tension in the U.S., but a lot of political tension everywhere, right? And it seems like people are yeah. picking their side and there's Republicans versus Democrats. And 
you know, increasingly I've, I found it hard to put the verbiage on it exactly, but I've just started to think that's not actually where the tension really is. And if we use the fourth turning paradigm to sort of look at what is the real tension going on here, maybe actually what it is, is people who are in institutions today or in institutional positions of power, they're sort of clinging to that power, even though the institutions yeah. no longer make sense or serve the interests of the people. What do you think about that as a fundamental creator of tension? No, I think I think that, I, I think that's ab I think that's absolutely right. I think um, you know again, when people are are warm and well fed and happy and they get to go on that vacation and there's life's easy, you know, there's why would you ever revolt against that? That's great, but mm. you know, when you're hungry, when you're cold, when you no longer think that the that the institutions have your best interest at heart and you just see no other way, that's when you lash out. That's when you push back. That's when you, that's when revolutions happen. You know, you look back through history, every revolution in history, it's because the people were cold and hungry, right? Or, you know, or inflationary pressures where we're eating away at their everyday quality of life. Um, and you kind of, we kind of see that around the world in spades right now. And, this kind of, again, goes back to my whole thesis on, on the dollar and the U.S. kind of outperforming the rest of the world over the next few years is not because I think it's deserved and not because I don't see the problems here, um, but because I see this happening everywhere. Right. And and I think that uh, for because of the way the system is designed and because it was put in place uh, by the United States and because the United States, to a certain extent, rigged the rules in their favor. I think that allows the U.S. to kind of, you know, weather this storm a little better than the rest of the world. If the rest of the world was in good shape and not going through these problems that we're going through, and they were, you know, perhaps competing with us from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness, I'd probably be much more worried about the U.S.'s role in the world going forward. Uh, as it is, I think that the U.S. has a number of advantages that the rest of the world just doesn't have. And what really kind of, to, to be honest, what scares me the most is, you know, we talked about the fourth turning. Typically in the fourth turning, before all hope is lost, a strong man comes to power and kind of yeah. becomes more dictatorial, becomes more aggressive, becomes more nationalistic, however you want to describe that, right? And, you know, before the U.S. loses its empire, I would expect that to happen here. You know, I would expect us to go from a republic to a, you know, a Caesar shows up, right? <laughs> mm. Caesar shows up and imposes his will and then uses all the resources of the empire to, you know, make the empire stronger rather than weaker. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's impossible for that to happen here. And so um, that's why I think people need to kind of keep, a, you know, just, I, I think to a certain extent, there's this kind of, and perhaps we've spoken about this before. I've spoken to other people about it before. I think over the last 10 years, certainly the last 20, you know, people have kind of started to realize that maybe the U.S. isn't quite as squeaky, squeaky clean and the white knight that it holds out itself to be. And as a result, you know, we kind of have this come up that's coming towards us and we deserve to, when the chickens come home to roost, we're going to deserve it. And as a result, then I think people think that because it's deserved that it's going to happen or it's going to happen right away. And I think that's kind of the wrong way to think about it. Um, I, I think that view clouds people's judgment on whether or not the U.S. can still be successful. 
And, and I think if you just kind of remove the emotion from it and you look at the, the tools and the resources the United States has versus the tools and the resources that the rest of the world has, I still think that it, you know, the advantages for the U.S. still strongly outweigh the disadvantages to a greater extent than the rest of the world. And I think, I think to the extent possible, everybody needs to remove their emotions and what they would like to see happen or what they think should happen from a moral perspective over the next couple of years and just kind of be brass tacks about what's actually going to happen and who's actually going to succeed. Because I, I think that would change people's views a little bit. So just a quick note on that, especially on that transition between Republic to, to Empire. There's a great book that was actually written on this by a guy named Tom Holland called Rubicon, which uh, covered in depth the transition of late stages of Roman Republic to very early stages of Empire. Really, really interesting read. Um, and just a note back then, you know, we we say that, well, that would never happen to us now. That was a totally different time back then. Rome had been around for, I believe, like 700 years before yeah. it ended up making that transition. Yeah. It, was in, it was as impossible to them back then as it would be to us today. Just to, just to point that out there. Sure. Brent, Brent, I want to end with almost like a rapid fire lightning round here on your thoughts okay. for specific assets going into the new year. Bond market. Right, US bond go. market, let's say, has been absolutely smacked this year, right? I think that we're recording this on December 22nd. The S&P is down about 20% on the year. Bonds are down about 25%. It's almost never happened before. What are your thoughts on bond market? Should we see more uh, more decreases next year or what do you think? I think we could probably see some decreases early in the year, but by the end of the year, at least in the US, I think bond market will do better by the end of the year. Um, I don't have the same level of uh, confidence for foreign treasuries. I think foreign treasuries could continue to come under under pressure. Uh, let's talk about the stock market. Let's break it into like US equities. And maybe if you want to, any distinction in between, let's call it like high duration, sort of risky tech stocks versus lower duration, sort of industrials, that sort of thing. How do you think, how do you see equities faring this coming year? So in general, I think equities are going to be really tough in the first half of the year. Um, it's possible that we get a big market downturn in the first half of the year. The Fed pivots and provides liquidity and therefore in the second half of the year is much better than the first half. But I think I think we will revisit the lows and possibly even or probably even go lower than the lows we saw this year in the first half of this year. I continue to favor if I am going to go into equities anywhere in the world, I want to own them in the United States. I want to own the big blue chip dividend paying ones. Um, I, I, I don't have a, an opposition to some of the bigger tech names, but I, I, I'm, I'm not in general, I, I wouldn't be buying small cap uh, stocks or emerging market stocks. I, again, I want the kind of the big battleship names that can survive a recession and pay a nice dividend. Um, let's talk about commodities, uh, especially at the beginning of this year. There's a lot of talk about a super cycle. Some commodities certainly did well. Most have definitely come back to earth. What do you think about commodities moving into 2023 and any standouts that you want to maybe call out like any specific thoughts on oil or copper or anything like that? Well, I think, I, th I think to a certain extent, in many ways, I think 2023 could be similar to 2020. Um, I think we could see a really hard down move in the first half of the year and then see a reversal in the second half of the year. And I think oil is maybe a good, uh, a good one of those to, to say that. I mean, I, I, I think there's some short-term problems for oil. Um, I think the U.S. Fed and just the market overall market in general, there may be a demand shock. In other words, demand may fall quicker than expected. And so I think there could be some price pressure on oil in the short term. But I think in the medium to long term, I think oil goes much, much higher. Um, I think it's possible we get into some military conflicts at some point in 2023, more military conflicts than we're already having. I think that would be very good for oil. And, and essentially, if you get into the situation where supply is constrained for any reason, ultimately, that's going to be good 
for the long-term price of oil. So, you know, perhaps we see down in the first part of the year, but then up strong in the second half. And then just to, to close this out here, I'm going to ask you about precious metals. So maybe let's focus on gold specifically, then would love to get your thoughts on Bitcoin in the new year. Um, I think gold, it will remain under pressure. I, I do think that it's, uh, I think it will trade lower. I think, again, I own gold. I think everybody should own gold. I'm not a gold hater. I'm actually a gold lover. I think it's the most important asset in your portfolio, but I don't necessarily think it's going to pay off right away. Again, I think it could be very similar to 2020. I think we could have a sell-off in the first quarter, uh, maybe even into the second quarter. But I think by the latter half of the year, we, we may be, be, be running higher. On Bitcoin itself, um, I'd love to say that I'm really bullish on Bitcoin, but I'm just not. I, I think that it likely uh, goes lower. Um, you know, if it got to around 10 or 12,000, I would probably start to get interested in it. I think it's at 16 or 17 now. Um, you know, I'm always open to buying something for a short-term trade or for a speculation. You know, there was a, there was a guy named Teddy Valley who, who I thought kind of had called Bitcoin as well as anybody over the last couple of years. And he basically, he said it was the best way to play a global liquidity cycle. When there's no liquidity, don't own Bitcoin. When there is liquidity, you own crypto or Bitcoin. And if we got into a, a, a position, you know, in 2023 where the central banks came in and started to, to try to reflate the market, you know, I think that would probably be a good time to buy it. Yeah, well said. Uh, Brent, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Uh, if you keep bringing the heat like this, we're going to have to bring you on uh, to kick off and end, end every year. But uh, <laughs> if folks want to find out more about you uh, or the great work that you do at Santiago, what's the best way to do that? Well, you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can find it. You can look up Santiago Capital. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a white seashell as the logo. Santiago AU Fund is, is, the, mm. is the handle. Uh, you can go on YouTube and type in Santiago Capital, or you can type in Dollar Milkshake Theory, which is kind of strange, but it's true. You can type that in, you'll get a lot of links. I've done your show a number of times, so I think if people search the historical uh, links that you have, you can find some previous interviews. But uh, always happy to come back. I appreciate you having me on, and I uh, hope you have a great holiday. You bet, my friend. You as well. Cheers, and I'll uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks for your time. Peace.